You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley Ryan, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation in law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. In this episode of Wiley Connected's Advanced Persistent Chat Cyber Podcast, Megan Brown and our guest, the U.S. Chamber Vice President of Cybersecurity, Matthew Eggers, discuss recent and evolving federal efforts to address cybersecurity, as well as the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's advocacy on cyber policy, including new NIST and DHS cyber initiatives, and work on IoT security. Thank you for joining another episode of the Wiley Connected podcast. Today, we are delighted to have Matt Eggers from the United States Chamber of Commerce join us to talk about cybersecurity and all the many things that have been going on at the federal level. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Megan, thank you very much. Thanks for having the uh, chamber and me with you. My pleasure. Um, We do a lot of nice work together, and you guys have been doing some very innovative and interesting things for a long time on the cybersecurity front. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what the Chamber's role in cyber is? What's your cyber work look like? Thank you. We do a lot. I think one way to anchor it for your listeners, and by the way, I've been a fan of the podcast since you guys launched in July, and I listen to a lot of podcasts, so kudos to you guys for A, doing it, and doing a good one, so I enjoy it. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. So I, I would say I think about our efforts in cyber this way. I have a, a working group that I lead. We've got some 200 companies and associations, state and local chambers. We come together, I often say every Wednesday, because we come together to talk about a policy issue, a legislative issue, a regulatory issue that our members think is important. Uh, so, for example, you know, yesterday or even last week, you would have seen us talking about a bill that's being considered. You might be looking at the cyber strategy, either that the White House produced or DOD, things like that. Uh, since there's so much that kind of comes up a lot of times out of the blue, I think that gives us an opportunity to react, hopefully in a in a proactive way. I often think at the outset, we're coming up on a new year, 2019. I often think we have some kind of sheet music at the beginning of the year. But we often have to play jazz, meaning we we kind of have to riff on what comes up. And so many new things come up from time to time. Yeah, no, there's a lot going on. I'm privileged to be on your guys' uh, Cyber Leadership Council and see firsthand the the work you guys do both proactively and responsively. One of the things that I've noticed having been in the space for a while is it seems to be changing a little bit right now in terms of the tone, what we're hearing from the federal agencies. What have you seen change in the last few years, or what are you noticing as we head into 2019 that might be different than what you were doing, you know, six years ago on cyber? You know, it's interesting. I've been thinking about that a lot with the release of certain strategy documents. Back in 2010 through 12, we were looking at various regulatory proposals that would grab the minds and attention of a lot of let's say, critical infrastructure entities, really focusing on specific companies, maybe assets. The major muscle movements in that space were the the Lieberman-Collins bill, CISA. Three years later, 2015, I think we've seen a real shift, I think, from even just maybe six years ago to a bigger focus on public-private partnerships, Mm -hmm. which I think makes me think of the, the National Security Institute, I think, at GMU just put out recently. Um, I think I've seen more of an intense focus on public-private partnerships uh, in a good way. I think at the end of the day, we want our members, government partners to be coming together and coming up with a solution jointly that they both find to be useful. I think that's what 
uh, drives a lot of our work. I've noticed a big shift from, as you said, the critical infrastructure piece maybe five years ago. People were focused on that. Now I think there's a recognition that sort of the the high-tech space needs to be much more involved in this. Some of these emerging and critical technologies are raising national security concerns, cybersecurity concerns. So maybe let's talk a little bit about the Internet of Things. Um, I know you guys filed recently with the National Institute of Standards and Technology. They are doing a lot on Internet of Things, both security and privacy. We filed, we've represented folks over there. Tell me a little bit about what the chamber has submitted and, and what's going on with this NISTER on IOT security and privacy. NISTER. So everybody at home needs to know what NISTER means, right? <laughs> so that's Draft NIST or Interagency Report, National Institute of Standards and Technology. So they just came out with, in September, a publication called Considerations for Managing Internet of Things, Cybersecurity, and Privacy Risks. I think it's important for folks to know that IOT is a big issue for industry and policymakers. There's been a lot of attention in Congress, in agencies around the world on how do we get stronger devices and get stronger devices out into the field. And at the chamber, we want to see IoT devices deployed more widely. It's going to be good for economics. But we did. Yesterday, we submitted some comments to Kat Magus and her colleagues at NIST. They've done a very good job, I would say. In a nutshell, we are encouraged by the document, which really tries to instruct organizations on how to bring in IoT and think about privacy and, and security. And then I think the, the big message is go ahead, take the next step and look at possible non-regulatory baselines across devices and within what I think some folks might say are vertical or types of devices. So, you know, the July event that they had really left me with the dominant impression that it's not clear what kind of requirements, let's say all devices must be patchable, which most people think is a good idea, but it's not clear that most stakeholders in this space think that that's prudent, wise, technically a sound across all devices. And then we want to get into, let's say, types of devices, whether it's a, you know, an IoT-oriented uh, shoe, a medical device, something in a car, right? We're going in that direction. And I think NIST is the right organization, NIST and NTIA are the right organizations to help convene industry and other stakeholders to kind of do this job, which I think at the end of the day, industry really needs to lead. We've said we've got the most to gain from a strong IoT environment. We've also got the most to lose. Yeah, I think one of the challenges I'm seeing with the many pieces going on at, at NIST, for example, are though that they have a lot of different proceedings going on. I mean, they're doing a lot on privacy, they're doing a lot on IoT, it is a little bit hard to keep up with all the different work streams they have going on. You know, we've talked about that a lot. And I think one of the things we've encouraged the White House, Congress, is to help out the Department of Commerce with resources. We're talking with appropriators. We know budgets are lean, but Commerce, NIST, needs, I think, funding and people to do what they need to do. We've said so in letters. We've engaged officials. We're not talking tremendous sums. The federal government spends a lot of money on cyber, rightfully so. But I think to do, I think, accomplish what we want to do in this space, creating stronger devices and having consumers pick them up, buy them in mass, we could use some more support for commerce. So let's pivot a little bit. We had the 
National Defense Authorization Act passed recently, and we did a podcast on that very exciting law. There's a lot in it this time. In the past, it's been focused on sort of what I think of as guns and butter, traditional defense stuff. There's a lot of cyber in this one. One thing we mentioned on a previous podcast but didn't get into in depth was this Solarium Commission, which sounds a little newfangled, kind of exciting. It's fascinating. But it's in Section 1652, for those Mm -hmm. of you who want to peruse your National Defense Authorization Act. It's going to look at some issues with international norms and deterrence, which, of course, folks have been talking about for a while. What's your take on it? I think the jury's still out, meaning it was uh, sponsored. The language, the provision was sponsored by Ben Sass, Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska. You know, it's probably not a surprise to many that know him that he's got a U.S. strategic command in Nebraska. He's got a focus on cyber and I think security issues more more generally. The way I think about the commission right now is, you know, I think it's supposed to have met. But leaving, leaving aside kind of the logistics, the membership, which is still TBD, and their forthcoming report in about a year, December 19, I think about it this way. I was pleased to see that some key topics that we emphasized to the last administration, things like international norms and deterrence, uh, are part of the assessment effort. Uh, one kind of, I guess, two words that f- interest me, defending forward, um, which I think that they'll likely take up. It was a key part of the DOD cyber strategy. If there's one thing that I think the Solarium Commission helps us do is to get away from a situation where we have endless but productive meetings (laughs) and roll up our sleeves and talk about what a process would look like for industry, DHS, law enforcement, FBI, Secret Service, other parts of government, DOE, Treasury, to deal with cyber attacks before they happen, right? Left of boom is the kind of the, the... the lingo. But I think what we're looking for is to have better clarity be about how we defend our, our businesses, our key infrastructures, particularly at a functional level, which I think a number of your listeners will appreciate. Yeah. I mean, one of the complaints or issues that my clients in the private sector generally has that I hear a lot and really do agree with is American companies are under attack by some pretty nasty folks. And it's it's a little unfair perhaps to expect them to be fighting this out on the front lines without enough support from the government from what is really, you know, an essential government function. I mean, you know, we typically don't ask homeowners to engage in self-help to defend themselves. You can call the police. But for cyber, it's not really clear who you call. I mean, they'd like you to call DHS and the FBI. But I think there's still some cultural changes that have to be made to make that sort of part of the standard operating procedure for companies to really want to work collaboratively with DHS because, the protections aren't necessarily where you want it to be for those kinds of productive conversations to happen. Yeah, I I think we could spend hours on this issue alone is that engagement topic on left of boom issues where let's say a nation state, and what do we mean, right? Uh, It's pretty well known that we're talking about nation states like China, Iran, North Korea, Russia. Criminal groups, I think, are the key uh, malicious actors. You've got maybe one-off actors here and there, but I think the skill, the talent, the resources, time, energy uh, rests with those entities. I think uh, DHS, FBI, others will will quickly say, call to one, call to all. I think what we're looking for is at some point, there's a lot of well-meaning, talented, smart, dedicated people. We're trying to figure out when a company comes forward 
which is a pretty bold move, yeah. right? Your clients, I'm sure, our members don't come forward easily. And frankly, we'd like to maybe see more of that. And let's maybe talk about that in a second is how do we get help in stopping attacks, right? Almost how do we use a, a fire extinguisher, maybe symbolically, to put out a cyber attack fire that's originating from overseas, right? I think that's one of the things we'd like to look at more. But with all things in this space, we often are interested in action and restraint, right? I think we want to kind of push forward, but also make sure that we're checking ourselves, right? Both industry and government. And, you know, quick footnote, we had uh, Scott Shackelford uh, on our Wednesday call yesterday from Indiana University. I put in a shameless plug for my uh, where I went to school. Uh, he's got an active defense paper in the works. I think there's a lot of interest in that topic. I, we've chatted about this. Uh, I think the bottom line for a number of our members, and I, I include myself in this thinking, is I'm very sympathetic to the idea of hacking back, right? Saying, hey, I've been a victim. I either want my data back, I want to know where it goes, or I don't want the functioning of our infrastructure to be affected, right? I think that is something that we're very sympathetic to. On the other hand, I don't think we want to see a free-for-all, right? Out there, I, I kind of jokingly say, we don't want to see the equivalent of a football game where let's say a punch is thrown and the, the stand's clear and you have a hard time getting people back on the benches. I think we want to avoid that. And the way to do that is to have perhaps government take a greater role in offsetting those kinds of attacks that we see. Right? Yeah. I mean, I recently had an op-ed out that talked about hackback and how it is dangerous. Some of the tools for addressing cyber threats and risks really are the purview of the government. They, they do have a monopoly on certain kinds of things like intercepting communications, taking aggressive action against other nations, cyber infrastructure. So there has to be that partnership because when you couple the difficulties in attribution, right, you've got hybrid attacks where it's a nation state working with a criminal cyber actor, attributing that is very difficult. And I'm uncomfortable with sort of turning our private internet infrastructure into the playing field for various kinds of activities, whether it's hackback or active defense. But I know there's some legislation uh, on that. We could do a whole podcast no, on that. I was just going to ask you, where can I find your, your blog? Is it on your website? I will put it up there, yes. Thank you. And um, I think I get mostly hesitation from members when we talk about hackback. I think they understand the difficulty that entities are in, meaning they don't want to be left to defend or fend for themselves, I should say. Uh, but then taking that next step, I think, is uh, is a tough one. I would say this. Uh, to be fair to Congressman Graves of Georgia and his, his staff, good staff that have written that bill, the active defense measure that the bill would provide for or authorize some kind of defense against the CFAA is around beaconing, which I think on the spectrum of, uh, let's say, assertive to aggressive probably on the assertive side. So just to put that point in there, just so I think when folks talk about hackback in the wider cyber community, it's good to be a little bit precise on the actual issue at hand. For sure. And the guys over at the Computer Crimes Division of the Criminal Division at the Department of Justice would, would definitely encourage precision and some trepidation about undoing some of the protections in the CFAA. And one thing I left out was I think a good thing is kind of a break is the bill would call for some kind of pilot. So if industry partners or organizations wanted to take advantage of the bill, they have to have a sit down with the FBI, D 
DOJ and say, hey, this is what's happened to us. Here's what we'd like to do. What do you think? I think that that's probably a good process from a policy standpoint. I don't know if we ever get to a bill like that. I think we, I think much depends on what happens with DHS, DOD working together with industry, but time will tell. Yeah. So let's move on to supply chain. We're involved in a lot of supply chain issues for the telecommunications and ICT sectors. It's obviously lots been going on this year with uh, the ZTE denial order and various pieces of legislation under review. What is your take? How do you keep a handle on these initiatives and where do you see things going? I would almost jokingly say I'm struggling only in the sense that there's so many different pieces out there that you might uh, fit under supply chain. Um, There's a few things we're interested in. I guess probably number one, um, just to go in a particular order is, you know, DHS at their July 31 National Risk Management Center launch noted the establishment of a an ICT supply chain task force. I'm sure you and many of your clients and our members are interested in what that produces. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, but I would say that we will be as helpful as we possibly can. I've got a lot of confidence in uh, the folks uh, leading that effort, which include Robert Mayer at U.S. Telecom and John Miller at ITI. Uh, many of your listeners likely know these gentlemen. I've said to them that they've got the kind of regular construct of that task force. I think uh, two things I look for is representation of uh, participants beyond, let's say, comms and uh, communications, excuse me, in, in IT, really to enable buy-in from whatever they produce. The other thing I would say is uh, we're also looking at uh, a part of the NDAA, the the FY19 defense bill, is the source code review program that DOD has to write some regulations around. I think industry recognizes that this administration and even the past administration, uh, this White House, the defense community has an interest in the things that make up its supply chain. And I think uh, one of those things, I guess, invariably involves when companies have commercial opportunities overseas, which they have to pursue in a global market. Do they show certain codes to foreign parties? I think if there's a message from us, it's we really want to help DOD get this right. And I think we're looking at future conversations. There's some other groups that are working this very diligently, I would say, in addition to the chamber, but this is something where we welcome engagement now and in the future. Great. Yeah. Um, My government contracts colleagues have um, some experience with the various DOD obligations that apply to supply chain and others, and, and it is a complicated regime that doesn't, to me, jump out as being easily transferable to the private sector more broadly. And I hope your colleagues don't mind if, they, if I say that I've utilized their materials in writing what I do. So thank you for, to them. Fabulous. Glad that our law firm marketing materials can be of help to you. <laughs> That's right. uh, let's chat briefly about this Cyber Safety Act. Safety Act's been around for a while What's the innovation that's on the table? What do you guys want to do? Well, Safety Act is a concept, or the uh, the Safety Act itself goes back to 2002. And I would say that there are professionals in this space that are way smarter than I on this law that really came about after the uh, the events of 9-11. And the idea, I think the animating idea, is that some entities that make certain technologies, widgets, gadgets, services – we're kind of afraid that if they brought their products forward to the market, they could face some kind of liability in another 9-11-like event. 
what we're talking about here with a bill led by Senator Daines, uh, S-2392, for folks that follow along at home, uh, really tries to clarify that the 2002 Safety Act applies to cyber technologies. And that's really important because I look at it this way. You had Secretary Nielsen, DHS Secretary Nielsen in uh, July up at New York say, you know what, uh, we're facing bigger threats from cyber actors. Yeah, physical is key, terrorists are key, but really right now we're focused on, on cyber. I think you've got device technology makers that are bringing devices forward. Let's say they're protecting America, but they themselves aren't necessarily protected. So one of the things we'd like to see this bill do, and it would do, is clarify that the Safety Act applies to a significant cyber attack, what we would call in the bill a, a declared cyber incident. Um, I think it would help incentivize companies to take their technologies to DHS, the S&T Science and Technology Office, to kind of go through a boot camp. Their technologies get vetted very vigorously. It's a costly, time-consuming process, and they come out of it with a stronger product that goes to market. And what do they get for doing all that? They'd get some kind of litigation management solution. And I think we still want to get that done this year. The calendar for such work is the days are winnowing down, but I think we'd still like to do it. we got to do it. Good. Last thing, I think I have heard you're going to be moderating a panel at the very cool in Baltimore Cybersecurity Risk Management Conference that NIST is putting on, right? They've done their cybersecurity framework. They did that in 2014. They updated it. Earlier this year, we've all participated in that process. Mm -hmm. Everyone thinks mm -hmm. the framework's wonderful. Um, so this risk management conference is like a two-day deal in Baltimore. What's going on up there and what's your role? I am pleased to say that I'm going to be part of it. Chamber's going to be part of it. I and some other colleagues. Kudos to Matt Barrett and Suzanne Lightman at NIST who have been really putting this together. I get to moderate a early morning plenary session on the 7th with uh, large organizations. I think what we want to do is look at how big organizations are dealing with cyber risk, cyber threats. How do they make their decisions? I think one of the things that I think is hard to kind of measure, right, and think about is how do different organizations make their decisions, right? How do they, from top down, say, hey, gang, what do you need to do cyber risk management well? And then the professionals, senior managers, boards have to think about trade-offs, right? We live in a world of scarcity. You don't have unlimited budget, uh, time, attention. Uh, you got to make those decisions. We're going to talk with some folks about that later on. I think one o'clock on the seventh. Still, uh, I'll be moderating another panel called "Friends Don't Let Friends uh, Do Cyber Alone," and we're trying to look at and examine that role between cyber providers, let's say, technology providers, and the role of insurers. I think there is some room for partnerships to grow where companies come together to serve an entity that needs protection. I think what we see is a company will go through, let's say, some kind of cyber car wash, just to use an analogy, and they come out a little bit better, and they would be a better insured. Then the insurance entity and other companies have an incentive to make sure that that company stays on its feet, right, and doesn't have a bad day because I think one of the crucible moments, I think, in this town that we want to not see is companies ending up in a hearing room chair. Uh, we want them up there testifying about things that are good for them, not why things went 
wrong. Yeah, well, I think you've hit on something there. Um, I think I'm pretty excited about the kinds of innovation we're seeing. We're actually seeing some smaller companies come and need some help navigating contracting and commercial relationships where they're coming up with cyber solutions and the insurance industry is buying them and leveraging them. So I think Mm -hmm. there is a lot of there there in terms of what they can do collaboratively. But the bigger picture for me is that the private sector, there's a lot of movement here that I think the government sometimes doesn't really pick up on. But people that are seeing a market need coming in to meet that need. One example, shameless plug. Yeah. CTIA's IoT certification program oh, and other other kinds of things like that where the private sector is is identifying a gap or a place where they can help and they're filling that gap. And mm-hmm. I think that's exciting because it's showing that the government doesn't have to be the actor here. The private sector can do this. I'm glad you mentioned that because, uh, and we have talked about this, one of the things and the kind of the turn of the year is always kind of an artificial kind of time to frame new work efforts. But one of the things I'd really like to see our members, probably your clients, others in the business community do is toot their horn a little bit. I think, um, you know, I would say it's easy for me to say, hey, go out there and tell your story. But we don't trade stock, right? We don't have stock prices that we have to think about. Well, I mean, we do have political capital, right? But what I want companies to do in their trades is to work with groups like ours and law firms like yours to get out there, engage policymakers on a regular basis. You don't have to overdo it. But I find that a forward-leaning posture where policymakers have an understanding of what you do, if you're a bank or a comms provider or a healthcare entity or a transportation company, I kind of want them almost telling you what they know about you rather than the reverse. I think you want to be a resource to policymakers because in many cases they're overwhelmed. They've got a lot to think about. I think it's in the area of cyber, people are somewhat intimidated by the topic. I think we've had the benefit of working in this space for a long time, so they may not want to engage. But I want our companies to talk about what they're doing well. And frankly, I want them to think about what they want going into 2019 from a policymaking standpoint. And I don't know what the Congress is going to look like, but I think we know enough to know that at the end of the day, industry should be setting the priorities or at least being assertive about what they want, what they want to get more of. Yeah, I've been telling folks, if you don't ask, you're not going to get. And I think in cyber, especially being reactive is a tough position to be in because sometimes it's a bad event has happened. You've got a bad news story or you're going to DHS to ask about something you're seeing on your network, but you haven't laid the groundwork of trust. And I think that that trust concept is what uh, Secretary Nielsen was talking about with these Mm -hmm. partnership pushes that they're making. And that requires some some legwork. It does require yeah. some investment. I want you to uh, maybe say a little bit more about your uh, the CTIA um, cyber cert effort that they launched in August, because I think in terms of the NISTER that just kind of came out recently, it's featured in that. Mm-hmm. So from your vantage point, how do you see that cert effort benefiting the cyber ecosystem, I think it would be useful for the folks that are listening. Yeah, sure. No, um, CTIA, the Wireless Trade Association, um, they don't just advocate policy. They actually run a variety of certification programs that are really critical to how the mobile ecosystem actually operates on a technical level. They they drew on that expertise to create this cybersecurity for IoT certification program, taking the perspective of as wireless operators and device manufacturers what should be sort of the baselines and table stakes for a device to get on U.S. networks. And so they put this together. There's information on the web about it. I was gratified to see it in the 
NISTER that came out, because to me, that's what NIST and the government should be doing is is creating the circumstances for innovators to share what they're doing with other folks, to identify what works in the private sector, and then push that out more broadly. It does two things. One, it satisfies the statutory commands to Department of Commerce to promote private solutions where possible. It also, if they do it internationally, will help keep the market for cyber and various technologies from fragmenting. Mm -hmm. So Europe's very concerned about IoT security. Mm -hmm. Lots of folks are. If everybody sort of goes off into their corner and does their own thing from a regulatory perspective, you're going to have different standards, different approaches. That's going to slow commerce. What's good about these private approaches is some will work, some won't, some Mm -hmm. will be great, some will fail. And eventually you'll have some, you know, consensus about what's a good set of standards without having to do a regulatory thing, which is going to be unwieldy. So I think it's a great um, signal to the government that, you know, the private sector gets it and is stepping up and doing what it's doing in a in a market-based way. I'll confess I was kind of wild when it came out. Um, you know, kudos for them for doing it. I thought, hey, this is good leadership. One of the things going back to kind of engagement with policymakers is making sure that they know that these things are out there. Many do. Um, I think it's a it's a solution for how we strengthen devices. The market's leading. Other folks can kind of flock to it, critique it as needed. But I like to see industry leading and then having others react. I think over the next probably two or three years, we're going to have some kind of product, hopefully that NIST framework-like. And what I mean by that is it kind of captures the imagination, right? When we kind of go to cyber events where we talk to our, our peers in this space, they're very enthusiastic about the framework, right? The cyber framework that yeah. was developed in 2013, 2000, and uh, launched in early 2014. We need something like that to capture the imagination. And that CTI effort kind of plays into that, yeah. right? So, Matt, you guys frequently bring folks from the government over to sort of build on these partnerships and cultivate those relationships. What's coming up in November that folks should be looking for? I mentioned the July 31 event in New York where DHS led the rollout of their national risk management center. They did say at the time that they're going to try to have a review at about the 100-day mark coming up on Friday, November 16th from 2 to 5. We're going to be hosting DHS and others to feature a conference called Critical Infrastructure Risk Management, uh, A Path Forward. I think we're going to be looking at cyber, particularly the efforts tied to the risk management center that our DHS colleagues, Rob Koloski, Dan Cruz, and others are really working on intensely. It's open to the chamber, chamber members, non-chamber members, and members of the press. I would say that we will be having, probably by the time that this uh, goes live, a way to register on the uschamber.com website. So if folks want more and they want to attend, come join us. Great. I look forward to that because when they rolled it out, they talked about the need to get the energy sector, the financial services sector, and the telecom sector talking uh, Mm -hmm. across sectors about risks they're seeing. I think the lessons that they've learned to date from that will be instructive to the rest of the economy and sort of how DHS is thinking about these risks that are sort of across the country and across sectors. I think there's a quality effort. It's hard. I think the participants would say trying to do cross-sector engagement among sectors, and then you add in government partners. Hard work. So I think what we're trying to do is lend a hand to that effort. 
Great. Thank you, Matt, for joining us in Studio W here at Wiley Ryan for our podcast. Um, I hope you'll come back at some point and chat about you know, this more. I would love to. And let me say, Megan Brown, you've been a very good partner of the Chamber. Thank you to Wiley. And again, kudos on the launch of Wiley Connected. I'm a uh, devotee. Well, appreciate it. So thanks very much for joining us for this uh, latest installment of the Wiley Connected podcast. We look forward to having you back to talk more tech and policy in the future. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected podcast brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley Ryan LLP. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create, and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.